Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States, and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Mormon, Mormon Discussion, discussion and, and its lineup of great programs. Helping you navigate Mormonism one episode at a time. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real, and I'm grateful for the chance to be with you today. Today, we're going to talk about Jacob chapter 5, the allegory of the olive tree, or sometimes referred to as the parable of the olive tree. Let's do some background first. The uh, allegory of the olive tree is an extended allegory recounted in chapter 5 of the book of Jacob, the third book of the Book of Mormon. Jacob states that the allegory was one of the teachings of Zenos found in the brass plates, which was a lost record. And Zenos is a lost prophet, according to Mormonism. Zenos was a prophet of the Old Testament, uh, or during that space of time, and his record, his writings, which used to be known among the people, was lost and never made it into the Old Testament as we have it today. There is little to no evidence that Zenos existed, but Mormonism, uh, because of the Book of Mormon claiming that this was a real person with real writings, uh, imposes that Zenos was a real prophet uh, in spite of there being little to no evidence of such uh, a person existing. And by little, what I mean is that the apologists within the church uh, make an argument that there are some similarities between Zenos in the Book of Mormon and some other writings that are out there, even though we don't have the name Zenos per se as the author. The basic gist of the parable is this. The master of a vineyard grew a tame olive tree, but in time it grew old and began to decay. In hopes of saving it, he pruned it, dug the ground, and nourished it. In time, some new branches appeared, but the top of the tree began to perish. So the master of the vineyard instructed his servant to cut off the decayed branches and to replace them with grafts of wild olives. Meanwhile, natural branches of the tree were transplanted to other parts of the vineyard. In time, the original tree, now with wild olive branches grafted into it, grew to give good fruit. Those natural branches of the original tree that were transplanted into poor soil also grew to give good fruit. However, a natural branch of the original tree that was transplanted into good soil grew to give a mix of good and poor fruit. The master of the vineyard instructed his servant to cut off the branches of this tree that gave poor fruit and burn them. However, the servant suggested to the master that with further care to this tree, too, might bring good for, or bring forth good fruit. And so the master and his servant worked diligently at nourishing all the trees. After a long time, the master and the servant returned to the vineyard and found that all the trees, both the original and the transplants, had failed and had all grown only poor fruit. Bitterly disappointed, the lord of the vineyard wept and said unto the servant, What could I have done more for my vineyard? The master determined to burn all of the trees in the vineyard since all had given only evil fruit. Again, the servant begged for clemency, and the master was persuaded, being reluctant to lose the vineyard he loved so much. The master decided to cut out those branches of wild olives that he had grafted into the original tree and gave the most bitter fruit, and replaced them with branches from the daughter trees that had grown from the previously transplanted cuttings. The master hoped that by bringing the branches and the roots of the original tree back together, they would grow good fruit. The master and his servants worked hard in the vineyard. They cut out the branches and brought forth evil fruit and burnt them 
and pruned and nourished the trees and dug the ground. After much hard work, there was no longer any bad fruit in the vineyard. And it came to pass that when the Lord of the vineyard saw that his fruit was good and that his vineyard was no more corrupt, he called up his servants and said unto them, Behold, for this last time have we nourished my vineyard, and thou beholdest that I have done according to my will, and I have preserved the natural fruit that it is good, even like as it was in the beginning. And blessed art thou, for because ye have been diligent in laboring with me in my vineyard, and have kept my commandments, and have brought unto me again the natural fruit, that my vineyard is no more corrupted, and the bad is cast away, Behold, ye shall have joy with me because of the fruit of my vineyard. The parable ends with a warning from the master of the vineyard that the next time the vineyard grows poor fruit, he will simply gather in the good fruit, throw away the poor fruit, and set the vineyard to flames. And that's the basic premise of Jacob chapter 5. And when I joined the church and began reading voraciously into apologetics, one of the arguments that you run into really quickly from the apologetic side, and, and certainly was a testimony builder to me, was that Jacob chapter 5 and the brief mentions of the olive, uh, the olive uh, allegory as well as olive horticulture going on in the chapters just following chapter 5, but mostly here in chapter 5, that Joseph Smith couldn't have possibly understood or known about olive horticulture. That this chapter points to ideas and concepts that would have been unique to all of horticulture that Joseph Smith couldn't possibly have known. And as I look back at my testimony of Mormonism, there were a thousand things that gave me reason to believe and to have faith. And this chapter was one of those. How could Joseph possibly have understood all of horticulture? How could he have possibly have understood the ideas of grafting and pruning that goes on with an olive tree? This argument, though, that olive horticulture is unique and there are concepts shared in Jack Jacob chapter 5 that pertain uniquely to olive trees for which Joseph Smith could not know. We have to wonder, is this argument true? Because if it isn't, if we can show that these things Joseph could have known, then Jacob chapter 5 goes from being an evidence of the Book of Mormon's divine origins to being uh, plausibly explained by other means. And if we can show that there is a significant degree of overlap and perhaps even plagiarism between Jacob chapter 5 and other sources accessible to Joseph Smith in his day, then it suddenly becomes evidence. This chapter 5 in the Book of Jacob becomes evidence that the Book of Mormon is fiction and not at all what it claims to be. So the first thing we have to mention here, number one, the Smiths were farmers. Joseph Smith, even at the young age at which the Book of Mormon is being translated, his 20s, Joseph Smith is a experienced farmer. His dad is a farmer. His brothers are farmers. His neighbors are farmers. The basics of farming would be secondhand to Joseph Smith. So the question becomes just the basics of farming then have to be set aside. This, Joseph would know, understand those concepts inside and out. So now we have to tackle what is unique to Jacob chapter 5 that Joseph Smith in his own uh, life experience couldn't possibly know. And the question is, would the Smiths have understood grafting? The idea of grafting one plant into another Remember, again, the Smiths are farmers. Would grafting be understood by them? You see, fruit trees of the same genus but different varieties are compatible for grafting. Nearly all citrus varieties are compatible with each other for grafting. Any two varieties of fruit trees in the prunus genus, such as apple, cherry, plums, all do well when grafted together. The European pear is compatible with other varieties of European and Asian pear. Peach trees. Peach rootstock is compatible with other varieties of peach. Nectarine, European plum, plumcot, and apricot trees. So when you understand that the idea of grafting is not unique to olive trees, and that fruits that would have been grown 
and tended to in the Americas, in upstate New York, would also follow these same concepts. So the question would become, if Joseph Smith understood the basics of farming and Joseph Smith understood the basics of grafting, and then he encounters that olive trees also can be grafted, then he can apply what he knows about fruit tree grafting to olive horticulture. But it becomes much more significant than that as we go through the other things, the other sources, the other places within the Old Testament, the New Testament, um, where Joseph Smith can easily grab the ideas that are shared in Jacob chapter 5. They don't need to be. In fact, they are not unique um, to olive horticulture in ways that Joseph Smith couldn't have known. In fact, they are extremely accessible to Joseph. Number three, the parable appears to be drawn from two biblical sources, the Song of the Vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5 and Paul's discussion of the relation of the Gentiles to the Jews in Romans chapter 11. The problem for the author of Jacob chapter 5 in the Book of Mormon is that Isaiah and Paul use slightly different metaphors. Isaiah is using that of a vineyard. Now, Generally, we, when we think of the scriptures and vineyards, we're talking about grape vineyards, but certainly some type of fruit vineyard. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 5, speaks of a vineyard. And the concepts in Isaiah chapter 5, and we'll get to those, are overlapping in Jacob chapter 5. And also that Paul, in Romans chapter 11, is talking about the horticulture of an olive tree. It is thus significant that halfway through the parable of Zenos, appears, Zenos appears, whoever the author is, appears to forget that he is using an olive tree as his metaphor and begins to use the whole vineyard as his focus. Are the concepts in chapter 5 from this unknown prophet Zenos unique to the Book of Mormon? I want to start by reading here as we get through a little bit more of number 3. I want to start by reading a section of the book, The Mormon Delusion. Volume 4, The Mormon Missionary Lessons, A Conspiracy. This book was written by Jim Whitefield. Here's what he says. Compare details in Jacob chapter 5 with Isaiah 5, which is about vineyards, and then Romans 11, which is the allegory of the olive tree, and Smith's plagiarism, as well as his 90 airs about olive trees constituting a vineyard, immediately jump out. These verses referenced, but the whole chapter is worth reading. And he, this is all from Jim Whitefield. Jacob chapter 5, verse 70. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard sent his servant, and the servant went and did as the Lord had commanded him, and brought other servants that they were few. And the Lord of the vineyard said unto them, Go to and labor in the vineyard with your might, for behold, this is the last time that I shall nourish my vineyard. For the end is nigh at hand, and the season speedily cometh. And if ye labor with your might, with me ye shall have joy in the fruit which I shall lay up unto myself against the time which will soon come. This is verse 72. And it came to pass that the servants did go and labor with their mights, and the Lord of the vineyard labored with them, and they did obey the commandments of the Lord of the vineyard in all things. And there began to be natural fruit in the vineyard, and the natural branches began to grow and thrive exceedingly, and the wild branches began to be plucked off and to be cast away, and they did keep the root in the top thereof equal, according to the strength thereof. And thus they labored with all diligence, according to the commandments of the Lord of the vineyard, even until the bad had been cut out of the vineyard, and the Lord had preserved unto himself that the trees had become again the natural fruit. And they became like unto one body, and the fruits were equal. And the Lord of the vineyard had preserved unto himself the natural fruit, which was most precious unto him from the beginning. And it came to pass that when the Lord of the vineyard saw that this fruit was good and that his vineyard was no more corrupt, he called up his servants and said unto them, Behold, for this last time have we nourished my vineyard, and thou beholdest that, thou, that I have done according to my will, and I have preserved the natural fruit, that it is good even like as it was in the beginning. And blessed art thou, for because ye have been diligent in laboring with me in my vineyard, and have kept my commandments, and have brought me again to the natural fruit, that my vineyard is no more corrupted, 
and the bad is cast away, behold, you shall have joy with me because of the fruit of my vineyard. Note that the reference text, and this is still Jim Whitefield, note that the reference text carefully avoids any of the verses that mention olives, although it does give the game away by mentioning trees and branches. There are extensive references to vineyards in the text, and the rest of the chapter affirms that this consisted of trees and that they bore only olives. There is no reference to vines or to grapes in the vineyard. The whole chapter thus comprises a completely impossible scenario. Smith also shows his grammatical ignorance by using the word mites in verse 72 instead of might, which serves the plural as well as singular in this context. Compare this with Romans chapter 5, 16 through 26, and the source and similarity become apparent. Here is Romans 11, 16 through 26. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree, were graft in among them, and with them partakest of the root in the fairness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say, then the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare the, not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell. Severity, but toward thee, goodness. If thou continue in goodness, otherwise thou, hast, thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not, still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were graft contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Sion the deliverer, and shall turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. Still Jim Whitefield, he says, Note not just the similarity of detail Smith penned in his Book of Mormon, but also the beauty of the King James Version text and grammar compared with the nonsense Smith ended up with in his version. There is every similarity, but there is no comparison in quality. A clearer picture of the overall plagiarism of Smith's ideas and his mixing of vineyard with olive trees can be gained by comparing Jacob chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 5, and Romans chapter 11 in their entirety. There is insufficient space to do so here, but they are all available to reference and compare online. The following is a bit harsh for a God to say to people who just cannot see that Mormonism is actually true. But then, considering all the evidence against the possibility that it is, why would God be so cruel as to expect people to enter what appears to them to be such an obvious delusion, or be damned if they don't? As with so much else regarding Mormonism, once you know the truth, the answer, of it, the answer is, of course, more than obvious. However, the psychology behind the statement is effective in ensuring members consider it their duty to try to convert people and to see missionary work continue. The fear factor is hard at work here once again. This is DNC 8474. Verily, verily, I say unto you, they who believe not on your words and are not baptized in water in my name for the remission of their sins that they may receive the Holy Ghost shall be damned and shall not come into my father's kingdom where my father and I am. So Jim Whitefield didn't want to get into the specifics of Isaiah chapter 5 or Romans chapter 11, but we want to do that here. I put a post on Facebook a few days ago regarding this whole thing, and I, I apologize for parts of this podcast that are a little dry as we're reading. There are things we want to cover, but uh, it's important to note, and this was Anthony Miller. Uh, Anthony's a, a super smart guy 
a good friend of mine, had a chance to have dinner with Anthony several times and to hang out with him. He's just a really good human being. And on a post on Facebook uh, regarding this issue, Anthony jumps in and here's uh, some of the thoughts he shares. The book of Jacob, Jacob chapter 5, contains a long parable supposedly given by the prophet Zenos concerning the past and future of the dispersed Israelites. Mormon scholars have made much of this passage, even to the extent of claiming that it displays horticulture knowledge that would have been unavailable to Smith. This is ironic because there are few passages in the Book of Mormon that display a greater reliance on biblical sources, both Old and New Testament. There are two major biblical passages that provided structural material for this parable, and a number of shorter passages that supplied secondary ideas. The primary passages are Isaiah's parable of the vineyard, contained in Isaiah chapter 5, 1 through 7, and Paul's discussion of the relationship of Israel to the Gentiles, Romans chapter 11, 16 through 24, in which he used the metaphor of an olive tree. That these two passages provide the framework upon which Joseph Smith built his parable is evident from several sources. Firstly, both passages were quoted by Smith earlier in the Book of Mormon narrative. Isaiah's Song of the Vineyard is found in 2 Nephi chapter 15. And Paul was alluded to in 1 Nephi chapter 10 verses 12 through 14 and other passages. So it's, here's what Anthony's saying. Anthony's saying, look, not only do we see these deep similarities between Isaiah chapter 5 and Romans chapter 11, but we already have precedent for Joseph being aware of these chapters and passages because he quotes parts and pieces of them earlier in First uh, and Second Nephi. Then Anthony continues. He says, secondly, several ideas presented in Zenos' parable can be found in these two passages. The theme of a well-tended vineyard, which failed to produce good fruit, is also a major theme of Isaiah's passage. Likewise, the contrast between wild and tame, or natural fruit, is found in Isaiah. From Paul's discourse, Joseph Smith obtained the idea of wild and natural branches, as well as one of his other major themes, that of cross-grafting branches between trees. We even find a few verbatim quotes from Isaiah, specifically the landowner's lament, What could I have done more in my vineyard? Jacob chapter 5, verse 41 this is echoed in Isaiah's parable, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Isaiah chapter 5, verse 4. The most telling piece of evidence, however, is the fact that the two passages are built on slightly different metaphors. Isaiah uses a vineyard to represent Israel, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, while Paul used an olive tree. In light of this, it is significant that the prophet Zenos and I'll insert here, whoever the author is, and back to Anthony, appears to display some confusion about his metaphor. The parable of the vineyard begins with Israel as an olive tree located in a vineyard. Jacob chapter 5, verse 3. However, halfway through the narrative, the metaphor suddenly switches to the vineyard itself, significantly just at the point that the Book of Mormon quotes Isaiah. Jacob chapter 5, verse 41. From this point on, the author repeatedly refers to the trees of the vineyard, apparently forgetting that the parable started out with olive trees as the primary metaphor, not grapevines. There are at least three shorter passages that provide structural material for Zenos's parable. The concept of the Lord of the vineyard and his servant, for example, is found in one of Jesus's parables recorded in Luke chapter 13, 6 through 9. From this passage, we find the source of Smith's repeated reference to the useless branches cumbering, quote unquote, the ground and the trees. That's Jacob chapter 5, verse 9, verse 30, verse 44, verse 49, and verse 66. It is from this passage, too, that Smith obtained references to digging and dunging. Jacob chapter 5, verse 47, 64, and 76. We also find the servant counseling his master against the wholesale destruction of the vineyard, a scene which is repeated in Zenos' parable, Jacob chapter 5, verse 26 and 27, and also 49 and verse 50. 
The concept of unfruitful branches being honed down and burnt, Jacob chapter 5, verse 42, verse 46, verse 47, verse 49, verse 66, is found in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10, and John chapter 15, verse 6. Matthew chapter 3, verse 10 was quoted verbatim in Alma 5:52, which was dictated before the book of Jacob, according to some theories. Verse 8 of Matthew chapter 3, bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance, is quoted several times in the Book of Mormon, Alma chapter 12, verse 15, chapter 13, verse 13, and chapter 34, verse 30. Are you beginning to see a pattern, folks? This is me. You're beginning to see a pattern. Back to Anthony. As an interesting aside, it should be noted that Ethan Smith referred to several of the source passages in the view of the Hebrews. On page 62, we find a reference to Israel being grafted in again. On page 254, the author quotes Luke, Why cumbereth it the ground? Ethan Smith also quoted and expounded on large portions of Isaiah, specifically with regard to Israel's restoration. He quoted Isaiah 5.26. He quoted Isaiah 5.13. And he also referred to the ripening of the vineyard as a sign of the end times. Thus, we see that rather than representing an actual ancient parable, Zenos's story of the vineyard is actually a conflation of several sources, some of which would not even be written for several hundred years after the proposed time frame, time frame at which Zenos would have lived. Here's Isaiah chapter 5, 1 through 7. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard, My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it, and he gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it. Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns, I will also command the clouds that they, rain, that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold oppression, for righteousness, but behold a cry. So you can see some of those overlapping themes and similarities there from Isaiah chapter 5. Here's Romans chapter 11, 16 through 24. For if, for if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree, wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root in the fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore the goodness and severity of God, on them which fell, severity, but toward thee, goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were graft contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? But there are others that Anthony pointed out too. Luke 13, 6-9. He spake also of this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon, and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, 
Behold these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. If we bear fruit well, and if not, then after thou shalt cut it down. Notice here, there's this overlapping theme, which to me, is, is there's no other way to really explain this than to see Joseph Smith as the author or that somebody else contemporary as the author and portraying Zenas talking about something. But in reality, the idea is absolutely coming from Luke chapter 13. And it's this idea that the master of the vineyard is fed up. He's done. If you go back to Jacob chapter five, it said, remember this, this is Jacob um, chapter five, and this is through the verses in the forties. And this is me paraphrasing. Um, I'm using Wikipedia here. The master determined to burn all the trees in the vineyard since all had given only evil fruit. In fact, let's go to Jacob chapter five itself and read this. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard wept and said unto the servant, what could I have done more for my vineyard? Behold, I knew that all the fruit of the vineyard, save it were these had become corrupted. And now these which have once brought forth good fruit have also become corrupted. And now all the trees of my vineyard are good for nothing, save it be to be honed down and cast into the fire. But behold, this last whose branch hath withered away, I did plant in a good spot of ground. Yea, even that which was choice unto me above all the parts of the land of my vineyard. And thou beheldest that I should also cut down that which cumbereth this spot of ground, that I might plant this tree in the stead thereof. And thou beholdest a part thereof brought forth good fruit, and part thereof brought forth wild fruit. And because I plucked not the branches thereof, and cast them into the fire, behold, they have overcome the good branch, that it hath withered away. And now behold, notwithstanding all the care which had have taken of my vineyard, the trees thereof have become corrupted, and they bring forth no good fruit. And these I had hoped to preserve to have laid up fruit thereof against the season unto mine own self. But behold, they have become like unto a wild olive tree, and they are of no worth but to be honed down and cast into the fire. And it grieveth me that I should lose them. The master of the vineyard has regrets. He's tired of wasting his time and energy. This is me. He's tired of wasting his time and energy in this vineyard. It is for naught. It is, it is a wasteland and it is time to just cut your losses. So the master of the vineyard wants to burn his vineyard down. Did we not just see that exact same theme in Luke? A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. The same time in Luke that the theme is, this is a waste, let's cut it down. We also get the verse, why cumbereth it the ground? Isn't it strange that the author of Jacob chapter 5 has the same theme and then also uses the same word? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, and if not, then after thou shalt cut it down. We have a servant in the vineyard interrupting the master of the vineyard in Luke chapter 13 and suggesting that we not burn the vineyard down, but instead we try to save it. Hmm. Let's see what happens in the book of Mormon. If we turn back to Jacob chapter five and we go to verse 49. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard said unto the servant, let us go to and hoe down the trees of the vineyard and cast them into the fire that they shall not cumber the ground of my vineyard for I have done all. What could I have done more for my vineyard? Here he is. He's just borrowing again from the Old and New Testament. And then the servant comes in, same theme. But behold, the servant said unto the Lord of the vineyard, spare it a little longer. And the Lord said, yea, I will spare it a little longer, for it grieveth me that I should lose the trees of my vineyard. Wherefore, let us take the branches of these which I have planted in the nethermost parts of my vineyard, and let us graft them into the tree from whence they came, and let us pluck from the tree those branches whose fruit is most bitter, and graft in the natural branches of the tree in the stead thereof. And this will I do that the tree may not perish, that perhaps I may preserve unto myself 
the roots thereof for mine own purpose. And behold, the roots of the natural branches of the tree which I have planted whithersoever I would are yet alive, wherefore I may preserve them also for mine own purpose. I will take of the branches of this tree, I will graft them into them, in unto them. Yea, I will graft in unto them the branches of their mother tree, that I may preserve the roots also unto mine own self, that when they shall be sufficiently strong, perhaps they may bring forth fruit, very, I'm sorry, bring forth good fruit unto me, that I may yet have glory in the fruit of my vineyard. Let's go back again here. Luke, Lord, let it alone this year also till I dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after thou shalt cut it down. This idea of these overlapping themes, when you understand contextuality, when you understand what it would look like if Joseph Smith were to be actually borrowing from other sources and implementing them into his narrative of the Book of Mormon, and you understand like what that this is what that would look like. And it becomes kind of interesting if you if you don't listen to Radio Free Mormon, I would suggest going to the podcast Radio Free Mormon, episodes 161 and 163. Specifically episode 161, Magic and the Book of Mormon. And I think this is the most groundbreaking insight into uh, Mormonism that has been done in, say, the last 12 months. Radio Free Mormon, having had experience and his work as an amateur magician, goes into the Book of Mormon translation looking at it from the perspective of a magician. And the conclusion that he arrives at is there is a lot of smoke and mirrors. There's a lot of sleight of hand. But that the actual item that Joseph is trying to keep everybody from thinking about, looking at, and looking into is the hat. And uh, Radio Free Mormon proposes, and when you listen to his episode, it becomes very reasonable and rational, that the trick here is the hat. That inside the hat, somehow Joseph Smith stored some sort of written uh, text of concepts or maybe even verbatim lines that he wanted to use. And we say that's kind of crazy, right? Like we don't have any of the witnesses pointing to this. There's nobody in early Mormon history saying something. But we ought to recognize that, for instance, when Joseph Smith translates the inspired by the version of the Bible, there's no if, ands, or buts Joseph Smith is using closely and directly borrowing from or plagiarizing from Adam Clark's commentary. And at the same time, none of the witnesses to the translation make mention of Joseph Smith using this. We also know that in the Book of Mormon, Joseph is using large sections of the very edition of the Bible that his family had access to, even to the point of understanding that it contains the very heirs that that particular edition had and that other editions did not carry over. And again, the witnesses to the translation make no mention of Joseph Smith using any secondary documents. When you understand that data, you understand that almost certainly, based on Radio Free Mormon's insights, Joseph had some sort of written text inside the hat. And of course, he could change it out every day. And of course, he had at least four, five, six years to work on this text as he kept putting people off in regards to the years in which he said, I kept meeting with Moroni, you know, 1823. 1824, 1825, 1826, and finally in 1827, finally Moroni lets me get the plates. And every year, I think I'm going to get them. I'm going to be ready. Whatever's going on in those four years, Joseph Smith thinks he's going to be ready, and it takes a whole lot more time to get done whatever it is he needs to get done. So he thinks he can be done by 1823, but when he goes to the hill, He's, he has to come back and tell everyone, not yet. And the next year, not yet. And the next year, not yet. And the next year, not yet. And then finally in 1827, he goes, okay, I'm ready. Right? And as he begins translating with Martin Harris, he does the 116 pages. And when they're lost, there is this huge amount of disappointment because Joseph Smith has lost this thing that he has worked so hard on in those years. So now he has to take another break 
and he has to come up with a new solution to the problem because he's missing a substantial section of his book. So he has to put others off. I'm not going to be translating for a while. The angel came and took the plates. He came and took the Urim and Thummim, and I'm done. I can't translate any longer. And there's a time that goes by because Joseph now has to recreate the early section of the Book of Mormon. And this takes a significant amount of time. But once he has the material written, he can, day to day, insert pieces of that writing or at least the concepts that he's going to go through into his hat. And again, I would suggest you read Radio Free Mormon, episode 161, Magic in the Book of Mormon. This will be linked in the source notes of this episode. You can begin to see as you look at the Book of Mormon as direct borrowing from a multitude of sources. Again, there, I think there's genius in what Joseph Smith did. Uh, my my uh, employer, as well as my good friend, uh, Chris Bloxham and I were just talking the other day about this. We can explain the concepts of the Book of Mormon. We can explain, look, the, the, the vision of the tree of life is Joseph Smith borrowing the dream from his father. We can uh, talk about that there are sections borrowed from the New Testament. We can talk about there are sections plagiarized from the Old Testament. We can talk about how Joseph is borrowing from the sermons of the ministers of his day. And we can actually show those connections. And we can look at Joseph's other translation productions, whether it be the Three Kingdoms of Glory, and um, which, was, which was flat out plagiarized from Emanuel Swedenborg, uh, who Uh, prior to Joseph Smith's day, just a little before that, goes into great detail in his own writings about three degrees of glory. We know that in the book of Abraham, he is uh, borrowing from uh, a multitude of sources. And myself and Radio Free Mormon did three or four episodes on the book of Abraham, where we talk about that plagiarism and what those connections are. When you start to see Joseph Smith, as uh, Anthony Miller puts it, an eclectic aggregator, meaning that Joseph Smith saw himself, or at least outwardly um, produced, a work that took multiple ideas from multiple sources, from a diverse range of sources, and then put them into one place so that people could access these ideas. Um, and, And that work was genius. Joseph Smith um, gets my appreciation. He gets my respect for having done this. He borrows, and again, we can show this directly. He plagiarizes from a multitude of sources into what becomes the Book of Mormon as well as his other future productions. And you can see it right here, right in front of your eyes with Jacob chapter 5. Matthew chapter 3, back to the scriptures. Matthew chapter 3. And now also the axes laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth forth not good fruit, sorry, which bringeth not forth good fruit, is honed down and cast into the fire. John 15, 6. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Joseph Smith had access to every concept to the point that that the words of Zenos in places identically match scriptures in other places of the New and Old Testament. That certain themes arise, as we pointed to earlier, where the master of the vineyard wants to just cut his losses and destroy the vineyard and burn it down. And the servant of the vineyard says, come on, slow down, hold on. Let's take some more time with this. We can do this. Every single theme and context found in Jacob chapter 5 is explainable by being found somewhere else. And the correlation is so direct as to impose to a rational human being that the author of Jacob chapter 5 is plagiarizing. But on top of that, we have other issues. An olive orchard is not a vineyard. There are two very different things. A vineyard, by its own meaning, has vines. It is not trees with branches. It is, it is um, bushes of a sort with vines. An olive orchard is not a vineyard, number one. And this is information. Michael Tweedy shared these two points. I want to give him credit. Number two, there were no olives in the new world. So in other words, if you are a Nephite, 
and you are hearing the allegory of the olive tree, olives aren't even part of your culture. And so you don't even know what an olive tastes like. You have no way to relate. And so there's context missing for the reader. Seems such a strange thing to impose. What Joseph had to do was take the parable of the fig tree found in Luke 13, change the fig to olive, add, and it came to pass a whole bunch of times, copy words and phrases like cumbereth, good fruit, dig, dung, hone down, cast into the fire, ramble on and on, and he had his chapter. Therefore, every tree which bringeth forth not good fruit is honed down and cast into the fire. That's Matthew 3.10. That concept is found in Jacob chapter 5, 42, 46, 49, and chapter 6, verse 7. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Isaiah chapter 5, verse 4, found in Jacob chapter 5, verse 47 and 49. I shall dig about it and dung it. Luke 13, verse 8, found in Jacob chapter 40, chapter 5, verse 47, verse 64, and verse 76. Why cumbereth it the ground? Luke chapter 13, verse 7, found in Jacob chapter 5, verse 49 and 66. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Matthew 9, verse 19, verse 30, is found in Jacob chapter 5. Verse 63. The reason I did this episode was because Daniel Peterson recently shared a blog post titled Some Notes on Olive Cultivation and the Book of Mormon. And Daniel is again emphasizing that there's just no way that Joseph Smith could have done this on his own. There is some really cool stuff about olive horticulture that Joseph couldn't have known. But it's this little sentence here by uh, Daniel in his uh, article. As you can see, Daniel's wanting to be careful not to overstate the case and to make space for the very argument that I have made today in this episode. Listen to Dan. Moreover, although some limited information about olive cultivation might be derivable through careful focused study of the Bible and a few other books that were available during Joseph Smith's early years, though likely not anywhere near where he lived, They contained only sparse details. And here's another problem. Joseph Smith probably, now that seems strange, doesn't it? And another problem. Joseph Smith probably had little knowledge of olive trees in New York as they will not grow in northeastern United States. Daniel here leaves this little caveat couple of sentences, making space for the very argument that I've made today, which is that if we're completely honest, all the concepts down to even exact phraseology and exact copyover of themes can be found in a handful of sources from the Old and New Testament. Combine that with the understanding of other fruit trees that can be grafted and how grafting worked, and with an awareness that the Smiths were farmers, that the prophet Joseph Smith was a farmer, There becomes nothing unique about Jacob chapter 5 that we can't point to in other sources. And when you understand all of that from the 20,000 foot view, Jacob chapter 5 goes from being an evidence of the divine origins of the Book of Mormon to being the opposite. When you understand this, Jacob chapter 5 and the allegory of the olive tree now become an evidence that Joseph Smith is indeed an eclectic aggregator, somebody who directly borrows, plagiarizes, and steals from other sources around him, puts a little spin on it, and makes it his own. And that makes the Book of Mormon, again, when you understand the evidence, not what it claims to be. This has been another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I hope that you find value in the things that are shared here. Until next time, we will continue the honest search for truth. Have a great day. 